Today is the day. Today, the 11th of May, 2023, is the day that the COVID-19 public health emergency ends in the United States. But what exactly does that mean? I asked Dr. Karen Landman, she's Vox's in-house epidemiologist. Did we do it? Is COVID finally over? Sean, no, come on, nobody is saying that. Oh. This just means that the money's run out. (laughs) Democrats in Congress tried to get funding extended for the public health emergency and Republicans said no. And actually a bunch of Democrats also said no. And and so the funding for a bunch of COVID-related stuff and for a bunch of non-COVID-related stuff that does actually have a huge impact on health is, is gone. What that means for the United States of America, coming up on Today Explained. Support for Today Explained comes from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. If you like spy thrillers or indeed Elizabeth Moss, then you might want to check out FX's The Veil. It's an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. Oh, I'll go. One woman has a secret, same here, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Today, explained. Now you say, now Francis. Today, just say. Good job. So the COVID funding from the federal government is ending as of today. So now we're going back to pre-COVID funding for a lot of stuff. Not to say that we haven't you know, reached a point in the pandemic where hospitalizations and deaths are in a way better place than they were. They are. We are probably at the lowest point for hospitalizations and deaths that we've been for almost the entire pandemic. So tell me what changes immediately and how are we going to notice those changes? One of the biggest changes is going to be that COVID-related testing and vaccination and treatment, instead of being paid for out of the big U.S. government bucket that was paying for it, those are going to get shifted to insurance payments. So that means that Medicare and Medicaid are going to pay for those things, Hmm. sort of, for the people who are um, on those types of insurance. And when I say sort of, I mean like Medicare is going to pay for a lot of this stuff for its beneficiaries, but people who get Medicaid, there's going to be some state-by-state differences in what gets paid for and how much. People who are on private insurance, everybody's going to have different rules depending on what their insurance company decides they want to cover and how much of it they want to cover. Okay. And then people who are paying out of pocket who are uninsured, which is still something like 8% of Americans, um, they're going to have to pay for everything out of pocket when it comes to COVID testing, COVID vaccinations, and COVID treatment. Another big change is that something that was implemented to 
keep people from being uninsured during COVID, that measure is going to expire. And that measure was this sort of uh, Medicaid auto renewal. So people who qualified for Medicaid, instead of having to requalify every year like they had before the pandemic, they were allowed to just kind of stay on Medicaid. Now that's that's going to change. It's going to go back to the way it was where states have to kind of reapprove everybody who applies for Medicaid every year. That means a number of things. It means, number one, that there are going to be gaps in people's coverage, which we know translate to people not getting the care they need and sometimes incurring debt. Even if that sometimes gets paid for afterward, it, it often really discourages people from getting care when they're not covered. So basically, anything that the federal government was paying for, if you could assume the federal government was paying for it, if money was falling out of the sky to help this pandemic, it's drying up. That's it. That's it. For what it means for the COVID public health emergency to run out. Yeah. Well, Karen, let's use this opportunity here, this sort of end of the emergency, to talk about how the federal government did in its response to COVID-19, not just the funding, but but the, the politics and the, you know, the response from the CDC, all of it. Let's let's talk about the full package three some years into this into this pandemic. And let's start with what we got right before we talk about what we got wrong. What did we really get right in the United States? Yeah, it's definitely easier to start with what we got right because it's a much shorter list. Um, Ouch. Sorry, uh, facts. So I think the resounding victory here was warp speed. Warp one, Mr. Sulu. Warp one, sir. Which was the enormous infusion of billions of dollars into developing, testing, and deploying a vaccine for COVID. This was the the former president, right? Yes, that that man helped get that into progress. And and he really made that happen, along with a lot of other people who knew it needed to happen. Mm. It's built, actually, interestingly, on the foundations of the response to SARS. So George W. Bush deserves the credit? Thank you. Now watch this drive. Let's not get hysterical, but the, or, the the national agency that was started after BARDA under the Bush administration, you know, helped kind of organize the funding for warp speed. BARDA was created to be able to respond to a coronavirus pandemic like this. We focus on chemical threats, biological threats such as anthrax, nuclear threats, radiological threats, pandemic influenza, and emerging infectious diseases. We can't get anything done in this government if we don't have a framework to get the money to the people who need it, right? And so that actually for this existed. So that's good, right? Uh, we'll see later that it didn't exist for a lot of other important things. And that that was a problem um, and remains a problem. But for this, we had a mechanism to get money to people to do research. There also had been some developments in science uh, a few years prior that really set up researchers to kind of know that mRNA vaccination was going to be a fast route to making a, a vaccine quickly um, and making it one that was nimble. So, you know, meaning that could be changed. So that was um, that that was some like nice setup to actually knock this one out of the park. So we got vaccination, um, at least creating the vaccine, right. Okay, so we did the vaccines right. We 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 mobilized quickly, efficiently, and and arguably miraculously. Kind of, we hate using the word miracles in science because it was science that did it. It was humans making choices, not just a you know an accident of fate or the, you know, the universe. It was people making good choices that made this happen. And science, you know, scientists working hard and being curious and doing the work. So that 
that was great. We also did some other stuff in, in science and in public health and in kind of more thinking a little more broadly about what health means in, in supporting people. You know, we stepped up investment in people's ability to feed their kids um, and people's access to Medicaid. That was that was all good, right? CARES and the American Rescue Plan, big pots of funding that did a lot for a lot of people early on. And, you know, loosening telehealth restrictions helped people get care. As we just said, a lot of this is going to get rolled back. So it was kind of this experiment that worked, but that doesn't mean that we're going to keep doing the thing that we tried because politics. Um, but in any case, so we, you know, and, and like scientists jumped on this. There's a lot of excitement and we got a lot of expansion of knowledge in different areas of science, understanding indoor air quality. Um, for example, that's a big one. Like we learned so much about what we need to do to protect people from infectious particles indoors. The work to improve the air students will share started last year. In this one junior school alone, $600,000 has gone towards ventilation upgrades that will increase the amount of fresh air coming in and to pay for univentilators with high-grade filters in portable classrooms. As a humanity, I think there's a lot of stuff that we are kind of aware of now um, that we weren't before. And some of that is it's kind of neat. Um, it's it's kind of cool that people know what epidemiology sort of is. There's so many of them on Twitter. <laughs> I know they're everywhere now. Um, <laughs> I think there was a lot of a lot of advance in science, and that that was great. And uh, the trick will really be, you know, applying this going forward, and not letting some of the other problems that came up prevent us from learning from this experience. Okay, so we funded a lot of science. We learned a lot as a species about disease we vaccinated this country for the most part with a couple exceptions is that the whole list karen or or do we need to make more time on the show for successes yeah i don't i don't think so i don't think that's nearly as interesting as the problems so i think i think we can i think we can move on Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Can we use that? We're going to use that. Today Explained support today comes from Quince, which rhymes with since, but is spelt with a Q-U. The poet Josh O'Donohue once said, we're getting very classy here, when one flower blooms, spring awakens everywhere. Now, I don't know exactly if that's true, it tells me to tell you, but I do know that Quince offers timeless essentials that they say never go out of style no matter what the season. And honestly, that also kind of sounds like a poem, doesn't it? Not only that, Quince says all of their items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Take it away, Claire White. The style feels great. It feels really timeless. It feels like a cut that I could wear over and over again and through a lot of different seasons. I love a plain sweater. You can upgrade your wardrobe this spring by going to quince.com slash explain for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash explained to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash explained. It rhymes with since. 
Support for Today Explained comes from Indeed. Hiring can be difficult. You can hope and pray and ruminate on how to find the perfect candidate, or you can turn to something more reliable, a smart piece of technology like Indeed's matching engine. According to Indeed, that matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences for job candidates, so it becomes more accurate over time. The more you use it, the better it gets. Indeed also lets you ditch some of the busy work, scheduling, screening, messaging. According to Indeed data, they have over 350 million global monthly visitors. They also did a survey that showed 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Listeners of Today Explained will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Today Explained. You can go to Indeed.com slash Today Explained. Let them know you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Today Explained. Terms and conditions do apply. Need to hire? Asks Indeed. You need Indeed. Don't come to the front during a pandemic because you figured out how to start a podcast. Today Explained is back with Dr. Karen Landman here at Vox. Karen, it sounds like you're stoked to talk about what we didn't get right in this COVID emergency in the United States. Here is your chance. Where do we begin? Well, first, I just want to normalize us completely failing to learn from public health problems in the past. Mm. We've done this before. Like we had SARS back in the early 2000s. Are we prepared for any kind of epidemic? Do those masks really work? I mean, what what happens? The great fear here, Martha, is that if we get large numbers of cases, our our hospitals are not ready to handle those. You need there to H1N1. President Obama decided to declare the epidemic a national emergency of swine flu, and around the country, people were lining up waiting for hours to get vaccinations. And each time, there were signals that. When the big one hit, we were going to have some problems. And we just didn't really listen to those signals. Mm. You know, this isn't the first time that we've been in this situation where the, the need for some big solutions is really staring us in the face and we're kind of letting politics and other priorities dictate what we do instead of those signals. So I think one of the big things that we did wrong is that we just really undervalued and underestimated how important and how powerful human nature is and just kind of undervalued social science more broadly. I talked to 10 different experts about what the U.S. government did right and what they did wrong around COVID. And one of these experts talked about the Dunkirk effect, which is sort of where, do you know what Dunkirk, what happened at Dunkirk? Christopher Nolan? Exactly. If you see the movie... Or read a book uh, or just read the Wikipedia. What happened was that in the face of an onslaught of an attack, normal people, civilians banded together to come up with a solution. The leisure boats. Yes. Aren't you waiting on the Navy? The boss for the moon stole the lever. Under captain. And his son. I remember. I, I remember from the, the film. And and history. What are you doing? You do know where we're going. France. Oppenheimer, July 21st. So, like, the Dunkirk effect is basically about how people band together to help their community when they're faced with a disaster. But this person was like, Dunkirk only lasts a few weeks. Then you need 
policy to come in and and do things. You need institutions to do things. Human nature isn't going to be enough to get us through this. And they're absolutely right. Like behavioral scientists just weren't part of the policymaking early on. And really, when when I talk about warp speed being a, a success, like that means that we made a great vaccine, right? But it doesn't mean that we spent a lot of energy trying to figure out how to get vaccines into arms, how to overcome vaccine hesitancy, which was not new with COVID. That had been a, a burgeoning issue for more than a decade, but it wasn't really part of the study early on. We took a punitive approach to a lot of public health policy rather than a harm reduction approach, you know, meaning we, we made mask mandates in a lot of places in the United States, which suggests that if you don't wear a mask in certain situations, you're going to get punished, you're going to get fined without really thinking about what we already know about how people do when they're faced with punitive policies instead of policies that encourage you to reduce your own harm and think about your community. Mm, we got a little finger wavy, you're saying. We got very finger waggy, not just individuals, but our policymakers. And we're still doing that. That's that's still the dynamic. <laughs> I love going into I love going into a store that still has a sign on that says you must wear a mask and no one's wearing it. The people just literally forgot to take the signs down. And now it's just embarrassing. It's just like a reminder of how we failed. We that's behavioral science, bro. And that's your bra. We could have thought about that. We could have studied it and even just like taken action based on what we know about behavioral science and about the effects of having punitive policies in place versus harm reduction. But we didn't. We didn't study the costs of interventions. We only really studied the benefits. And, you know, that might be in part because a lot of the costs are in the Department of Social Scientists. And that maybe led us to assume that too much is better than not enough. I mean, I think school closures are a great example of this. Mm. We always would rather do something than not do anything. That's human nature, behavioral science. But there are costs to doing that. And we saw a lot of those costs in a lot of ways. We didn't really value implementation science, which is a whole field of how you turn interventions that are supposed to help people on and how you get people to, to use them and then also how you turn them off. So, you know, we're just we're looking at we were looking at all of these interventions through the lens of clinical trials, which is a very nerdy, very sciencey, very uh, narrow, really, way to understand public health. Um, and that doesn't really account for all the human nature and all the nuance that goes into determining whether people are going to do what you tell them. So we've got problems of like behavioral science, implementation science. Do you think had we done a better job here, we'd be a little less divided as a country than we are now? Because, of course, the pandemic created a lot of anti-vaxxers and broke up a lot of families and friendships over over these social aspects. You know, I think it's very, very hard to say whether we would have been in a different place um, because we had an administration when this started. I don't know if you remember that was hell bent on using this to political gain. And I have to say, I don't think that that trend has receded. This is the same guy we talked about in the in the beginning with the Operation Warp Speed. Yep. Same dude. There are a number of people I've talked to who looking at the way COVID played out globally, how even in countries where things seem to go well early on. Things didn't go well later. And a lot of people have told me that they're not sure that there was anything that would have really changed the way this played out early on. Really? Yeah. 
like a different president, uh, a more behavioral informed approach? Yeah, I was sort of surprised by this. I think a lot of folks felt that the wheels were already turning on a lot of the problems. Um, and they weren't just turning in this country. You know, there a, a lot of the the issues that we faced with vaccine distrust, they're not uniquely American. A lot of the issues we faced with mandates backfiring, not uniquely American. So I think there were a lot of folks who felt like, you know, human nature would have eventually become a really big problem, no matter what, given the set of options available to us uh, back when this started. There's just a little bit of hopelessness about whether we actually had what we needed back then to get it right. You said earlier that we didn't listen to signals from prior emergencies. Had we listened, what else could we have done? This is another big area of failure, which is that we were not prepared. Uh, our public health systems and our healthcare systems just suffered from our total failure to invest in them ahead of the pandemic. And that is a decades-long problem. You know, capitalism is a is one of our core core tenets. And so we a lot of what we do, the choices that we make are guided by those priorities. So some examples. Let's let's just start by talking a little bit about public health uh, and why underfunding public health set us up here. So we continue to fund public health the way we had for years, which is through line items in the congressional budget. So that means that instead of getting one giant pot of money that's pretty similar year to year and being able to figure out how to allocate it within the agency, CDC gets a whole bunch of line item uh, amounts of money. And those line items kind of uh, align with different sections of the CDC. So like HIV and AIDS will get a certain amount of money and uh, chronic disease will get a certain amount of money and like respiratory diseases will get a certain amount of money. And so that money can only really be used by those eight little uh, sections or centers within the CDC. It gives the CDC a lot less flexibility and also subjects them to big changes depending on the mood and the way the wind's blowing in Congress. So we did not change that method of getting CDC funding. So that system had to kind of be made on the fly. Are we going to do better next time, Karen? Oh, boy. Uh, I have to tell you, I did not hear a lot of hope hmm. from the folks I talked to on this end. Yeah, there was... So some future host of some future show will be asking some future epidemiologist the exact uh. same questions I'm asking you now at the end of the next pandemic? I mean, it may not be that far away. It might still be you, Sean. Oh, no. I Sorry. Lots of really smart people have put their heads into figuring out what we should do differently. The amount of despair that I heard from people on whether our politicians could be trusted to do what they need to do to implement some of the most basic recommendations um, was just, it was very saddening. I think... We are not in a place in the United States where uh, where our leadership is really motivated that much by what's best for people. A lot of them are really motivated by staying in power. Uh, it's really hard to countenance. You know, in the absence of good politics, Karen, do we as a people, if we end up living through another global pandemic, are we better equipped to do it? You think? We got to be, right? Having lived through it, having had the experience. I mean... Some of us, at least, <laughs> we'll, we'll know maybe to wear a mask if it's airborne. 
Okay. Yeah, there are some of us who will wear a mask immediately and still have some, masks. Some of, us, some of us never took them off. I still see them sometimes out in the wild. I've seen some interesting stuff lately about political polarization as a risk factor for poor public health outcomes. And that resonates more with me than almost anything else I've heard. It just makes so much sense when you think about it, right? And has political polarization gotten better in the last few years? I would very much argue no, and I, I there are data to back that up. I think the tribalism and the political polarization that we are seeing now is worse than it was back when the pandemic started, and it was bad then. But it's not better. We're still, you know, shaking our fingers at each other about this pandemic when everything over the last three years, plus a whole bunch of behavioral science tells us that is not the way to get people to change their behavior. But we've kind of become the basest versions of ourselves now. And um, it seems like it's going to take a long time for us to bounce back. Okay, one major takeaway from this pandemic. Weirdly, I did not think this would be it. Stop wagging your finger at people. Never a good idea. Not not neighbor to neighbor, not health department to citizens. That was not the way to convince people to do anything. Still not. Whether you're a progressive or not, and whether the finger wagging is directed at progressives or not, you should be able to appreciate that finger wagging doesn't work. Dr. Karen Landman, read her at Vox.com. Our show today was produced by Victoria Chamberlain. We were edited by Matthew Collette, mixed by Paul Robert Mounsey, and fact-checked by Laura Bullard. Sorry, uh, facts. I'm Sean Ramos for him. The rest of the team here includes Halima Shah, Avishai Artsy, Hadi Mawagdi, Amanda Llewellyn, Miles Bryan, Siona Petros, and my co-host, Noel King. Our supervising producer is Amna Al-Sadi. We had some extra help this week from Jolie Myers and Michael Rayfield. We use music by Breakmaster Cylinder. And congratulations are in order for Patrick Boyd. Today Explained is distributed by WNYC on public radio stations across America. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you like email, you can email us anytime Today Explained at Vox.com. We read those emails. And I don't even like emails. Bro.